Forced slave labor taints the materials of one in every five clothing garments on the planet. For the right price and a trendy look, we don't so much care how our outfits get made. Today we're going to get versed on the basics of the Uyghur population of Northwest China, modern-day slavery in 2023, and the lessons we have to learn about American politics and democracy in the wake of this injustice. I'm Jacob McDonald, and this is Verse Podcast. Welcome to another episode of Verse Podcast, where we help break down the issues so that we can all walk away with a working, conversational knowledge of the topic, so that we can go out and participate in responsible citizenship, be a part of a functioning democracy, engaging in discourse that goes beyond blind party allegiance and clickbait headlines. Today we're talking about modern day slavery, what we have to learn about the Uyghur population in Northwest China, and how that can be translated to our perspective of life here today in America. Let's dive in. The Uyghurs of Northwest China, who are they? Why do we care? What does their life look like today? I want to start by getting into the basics of what this population of people is, what modern-day slavery is, and how we're participating in it as a population. This was just a very dark, very heavy topic, a topic that we don't have a lot of confirmed information about in the world today, which is scary that in 2023 we can't get a lot of solid facts on something that so drastically affects humanity from a country that homes the second largest population on the planet. The Uyghurs of China are a minority ethnicity of China, a minority in that they are Muslim by majority, most of them practicing religious Muslims, all of them cultural Muslims, at least, even if they are more secular. It seems that we're, we're finding all of them are being persecuted, but similar to what we've seen with Jewish populations in the past, that there's different kinds of persecutions and maybe, maybe even more drastic persecutions for those that are practicing religious Muslims. And this is such a tough topic to really go into because, but, but such a beneficial topic because it gives you this bigger world perspective of one, that's what the world can look like. That's what your life can look like today, even in 2023. You know, we're not reading about this in history books. This isn't something that we, we're looking back on as this horrible atrocity that we can sit here as the self-righteous in our hindsight and, and be like, well, I would have freed the slaves or I would have broke down the walls of that concentration camp and broke out all the Jews during the Holocaust. I wouldn't have sent them to the gas chambers. I would have done better than that. And just, I mean, I think the average person ideally, hopefully recognizes the ignorance of that. And if not, I hope that, you know, this picture of what is happening in China can help give us a humility check and a reality check and understanding that the world is a deep and dark, complicated place. Humanity does not know liberty and freedom and democracy in every aspect all over the world the way that we do in America today. Many countries do, thank God, but in China, there's an entire population of people that are being actively persecuted, imprisoned in internment camps, and without even so much as the justice 
of being labeled as such, as twisted as that is. But you would like to think that at the very least, if you were imprisoned, tortured, sterilized, separated from your family, forced into labor without pay, restricted from practicing your religion, subject to extreme propaganda and ideological training throughout the day, that you would at least get the sympathy of the world through the truth of the matter of what is going on. But as we've seen, that is often not the case. China does a fantastic job of restricting access to these areas. We know where the area is and where the area of China where the Uyghur population historically are located. I'll see if I can run this up here. Is Northwest China. So we've got this orange area of China in Asia right here. And in the northwest corner of China, we have the Xinjiang, Xin, Xinjiang province or region up there. That is historically where the Uyghurs have settled as, as a population. They've tried to make this their homeland. Many Uyghurs refer to this Xinjiang province as East Turkestan because they are historically, their roots go back to Turkey. They, they refer to this area as East Turkestan. This is obviously not allowed by the uh, People's Republic of China and things like that, because that would be going against the idea of unity that they would like to see in the world and in their country. Now, it does stand to reason that, you know, to give you some perspective on where China is coming from, this is a different part of the world. This is the complete other side of the planet. This is a population that is four to five times larger than the population of the United States. The United States has about 340 million, 335, I think somewhere in there. I might need to double check that. The United, the China has pushing 1.4 billion, I think just underneath that. So roughly over 1 billion more people are, are that they're trying to govern than in America. Now, you've seen and we're experiencing the effects of how hard it is to govern any population of any size. Even when we're governing a population that is a fraction of the size of China, we are living through the effects of how difficult that can be, especially when you value things like human rights and free speech and, and all of these things that are the foundation of our country's democracy. That comes with a price, a price that, that comes with a lot of discomfort, can often be dangerous, and one that how far is the government going to go to ensure unity in the population? Because in America, you know, it is often that we see the government going too far in the eyes of many, or not far enough in the eyes of many others. But the sheer fact that we have the ability to call that out and to accuse of the government going too far or not far enough or to criticize the president or, or Congress or run for election ourselves, regardless of where we come from, what our race or ethnicity is, the, the freedom to practice our religion, all of these things are going to increase diversity and with it increase a difference of opinion and in many cases fight against unity in a country. It is not all citizens. You can't require the population to become educated enough to understand how diversity 
will strengthen a population rather than divide it because people in a democracy are allowed to be as ignorant as they want to be and are allowed to have whatever views they want to have without being arrested or tortured. And not everybody has that privilege, as we're going to see today with the Uyghur population. So this is a Muslim minority in China, one of, I believe, 55 recognized minority ethnicities in China of their 1.4 billion people. The majority ethnicity in China is the Han Chinese. They make up the vast majority of people with that specific culture, that specific way of life. And that's kind of the ruling majority that everything else is based on and that everyone else is subject to. Now, there's an argument to be made that in America, we've seen the effects of the, the majority and how that can affect the minority. I would encourage you to look in this population, even today, and compare that to what we're experiencing in America today. And that's not to say that you know, if one country is worse, that doesn't mean we should stop trying to be better. There's always room for improvement, but it's never going to be perfect. And we should certainly be grateful for the opportunity to push back and point out that it's not perfect and, and call out the areas that are unequal and in opportunity and that we can try to overcome and at what level the government can comfortably mitigate some of that risk. The Uyghur population in the last decade or so has caused some issues in the unity of China. And I'm not going to get into today exactly what the Uyghur population did to take off the rest of the, the Chinese population, but more or less there were some there was some violence. There was accusations of a specific terrorist group that was a part of the Uyghur population carrying out violence against other Chinese. There were some riots that broke out between the Han Chinese and the Uyghur Chinese. Different isolated incidents like that, similar to maybe what we've seen with the Ferguson riots, with Trayvon Martin, with, with these kinds of things throughout our recent history. Now, in America, when we see these kinds of things break out, we try to find isolated aggressors, we try to hold people accountable to the law, regardless of where they're from, what they look like, what their ethnicity is. We match them up to the law and what, what crime was committed. And we try to provide a fair sentence and we make sure that they have a fair defense, regardless of whether we saw them commit the crime or not. And we try to punish accordingly. In China, they say, well, we have some Uyghurs that are causing some issues. And so we are going to systematically persecute the entire Uyghur population. Now being Uyghur in any capacity, in dress, in facial hair, in religious practice, makes you suspect. And because this specific ethnicity is generally isolated to this Xinjiang region, that's the region that has been most subject to the government's persecution. This persecution has, since 2017, looked like disappearances of large groups of people. Arrests, but I say disappearances in lieu of arrests because these aren't like active daylight arrests that are open to the public eye. Now, we could this would lead into a discussion of what 
even the Han Chinese life looks on an individual basis in China. And I think that would be shocking to the average person that that is life on our planet today. But even for a law-abiding citizen that is a part of the majority, it's pretty scary and eye-opening to see the difference between life in a heavily restricted communist country where you're not even trusted to have full internet access as opposed to now you're in that country and you're the minority that's being persecuted. You're subject to propaganda where the government actively encourages and teaches the the population at large that this specific minority population is a threat, that it's dangerous to the rest of us, that they're all terrorists and extremists, that they, they want to disunify China, if that's a word, which obviously is really unfortunate. So these disappearances start taking place around 2017, thousands of people. Since 2017, to give you some perspective here, we have what's estimated between 1 to 1.8 million Uyghurs that have been imprisoned, arrested, detained, given long on-record prison sentences, given off-record sentences, and what they're referring to as re-education camps. And so, so this, would, this would beg the question, why? So if China is, is got this heavy hand on the population, if they're, if they're in charge... Why even try to hide it? Well, China is subject to the, the criticism of the rest of the world, both politically and economically. China is responsible for about 20% of the world's cotton output, i.e. like where our clothes are coming from. Not my clothes, because this is 100% American-made. Highly recommend. I'll give you the name at the end of the show. But most people's clothes. And which is why one in five garments on the planet are tainted with slave labor because not only are they responsible for a huge part of the cotton output, they are also the number one exporting country on the planet for things like garments, textiles, and there's a whole list of things in one of the links in my show notes that you can look up through the Department of Labor for the U.S. that they do a great job of isolating exactly what was made where and how slave labor from the Uyghur population may have played into that. So cities, villages, towns in this Xinjiang province with the Uyghur population are actually divided up into sections of about 500 people or so per section, big squares that involve about 500 people. And for every 500 people, there's a police station. And this police station is heavily armed police with tanks with that are constantly walking around in bulletproof vests and things like that, patrolling the streets, enforcing things like curfews, walking up to random people, taking their cell phone and looking through it, making sure that any that any footage they have or pictures they have are appropriate by their standards, not allowing access to foreigners, to journalists, not reporting on what these areas look like, facial scans, constant photo IDs, scary stuff and this is not even in the actual camps themselves this is just in the the public region that this is happening the videos that have been obtained by journalists that have made it into the area are walking through something like a shopping mall in the Xinjiang province and, and to get in if they know that you're Uyghur you know they'll ask to look through your cell phone well they'll they'll take your cell phone and look through it they'll They'll ask for photo identification. They'll ask what you're doing there. And then you walk in and you'll see surveillance cameras 
all along, like every 20, 30 feet, 50 feet, whatever it is, so that every interaction, every conversation, there's constant facial recognition, always recording every square inch, every person. And you already have all of this in the database and China uses this and matches it up with artificial intelligence systems to do facial recognition that will then flag whoever they deem as a threat and monitor conversations and things of that nature. And if things get political and things get a little bit too individualized or aggressive, say, you may be flagged by this artificial intelligence system and then picked up in the middle of the night and taken to a re-education camp. Upon entering a re-education camp, typically the, the, the number one prime suspect are male Uyghurs uh, that are religious observers. Now, again, secular Uyghurs are also subject, subject to this persecution, so I don't, I don't want to discount that. But there's striking similarity between the creation of Israel, the persecution of the Jews during the Holocaust, and the the pogroms in in Russia and different things like that if you ever if you ever get into that these things happen at different periods in human history and they tend to be very similar which is why it's important to know your history so they're taking these re-education camps and there'll be mid midnight arrest forced they're not allowed to take things from their home things like that their children are then taken to their own form of camps, which would then be called schools. And journalists have gotten in to see what they believe these schools are. And these are these are large schools where walls are completely surrounding this big campus. No one is going in or out. There's barbed wire topping the walls, facing the inside so that none of the kids can get out. And you can see the kids coming out and lining up to recite chants about the Chinese Communist Party, about the Chinese national anthem and singing things and pledging allegiance. And in these schools, these schools are specifically for housing these children whose parents have been detained in these camps. These children don't know why their parents left or, or presumably or, or where they went or when and if they're coming back. And while they're in these schools, it's not so much general education that they're getting so much as political propaganda. They are forced to give up their native Uyghur language, which they try to preserve in this region, and forced to learn Mandarin so that they fit in with the rest of China. They're forced to continuously pledge allegiance to China and not just in, you know, not, not like in a patriotic way like we would do, like any country would do. Really, I mean, that, there's a part of the culture that is really important for that. But, you know, if you're, an, if you're a Muslim in the United States of America, there's a difference between pledging allegiance and being locked up and forced to chant different ideology about the United States and forced to constantly verbalize your allegiance to not being violent or not being a part of some kind of separatist organization that would fight against the country at some point. And these parents that are put into these camps, we have reports of forced sterilization, abortions if they're already illegal, I'm sorry, if they're already pregnant, and with the idea being that the ones that are alive, we can't openly just kill because in today's world, thank God, there is enough accountability by countries overall that China can't afford 
deep sanctions by the rest of the world that finds out about these atrocities and if there's significant proof to go along with them and then the rest of the world starts not buying their cotton or not participating in their export industry with them and things like that then china's economy tanks and that's a whole different story about the chinese economy and i know there's a lot of varying opinions on on what that looks like but so they get into these camps and they're subject to torture, forced sterilization, and as we've talked about today, forced labor. This forced labor can happen within the camps, specifically in this region. Uh, Congress in our country has, as recently as about five years ago, I believe, June of 2022, passed the Uyghur Forced, the Uyghur forced Labor Prevention Act in the U.S., stating that anything produced in the Uyghur Autonomous Region or other regions implicated as using forced labor are prohibited to import in the United States. Senator Marco Rubio has recently introduced some amendments to this bill as well, and that has not yet been approved, but I'm going to drop some links in the show notes that you can follow to express your support for that and and push for his, his further additions to this law to protect the Uyghur people and to try to expose what is happening in China. And because everything does come down to the dollar. As we saw with slavery in our own country, we had the example of John Brown at Harper's Ferry. You know, to, you can't just recognize an atrocity for what it is and then go in guns blazing and expect to change the world. We've seen time and again that that does not work. It's noble. It's great intentions, but... John Brown went in to change the world knowing what an atrocity slavery was and a few people got shot and the ones that survived, including himself, made no lasting change whatsoever and was hung by, even by abolitionists of the time because you change the world through the ballot box, through democracy. That is what will cause lasting change. It's not pretty. It can often be unfair and it can be subject to fraud and corruption and all those things, but it's humanity and it's what we've got. So the idea that all of this can make lasting changes in our world is going to happen through the dollar. In today's world, economies are where it's at. It's the same reason China is arresting people overnight and is denying these allegations of these concentration camp-like systems that they have over there. They're not allowing foreign journalists into this region to show... To, to be witness to what they're doing to these people. They're denying the existence of all these schools that are housing these now orphaned children because they don't know if their parents are ever getting out of these camps. All of this is in fear of the dollar and how you spend your dollar does matter because if you're spending your dollar anyway and you don't do your due diligence to find where it goes, you are indirectly supporting a cause that is prolonging the persecution and the torture and the imprisonment of this entire population of people. We have no authority over the Chinese government. We do have authority over the Chinese economy by choosing not to buy those products. And we often, we have taken action as a country in the United States of America. God bless America. We have used our democracy to take bipartisan action against this as news articles have come out. And that's a wonderful thing. So, 
there are a lot of companies and products that have now been prohibited from coming in because they've been directly linked with the Xinjiang region. And we know that it is likely to have been produced by slave labor. However, there are still existing companies today that are using products within different parts of their supply chain that are from regions that are implicated in the case of slave labor. Because China, obviously, okay, well, they deny the allegations. That doesn't work because journalists are getting in and proving that this stuff is actually happening. And then they take those Uyghurs that they have imprisoned and they move that slave labor to other areas like this this other province. I forget what it's, it's Shenzhou province, which is commonly referred to as iPhone City because half of all iPhones in the world are manufactured in this area. And they're transferring these imprisoned Uyghurs and forcing them into labor in these factories in other regions so that they can still use that labor to profit and to drive the economy. Now, con companies like Apple and Nike and stuff like that have come out speaking against slave labor just generically, so good job. And But when it comes down to it, there are specific organizations, charity organizations that are pointing out exactly where companies like Apple and Nike are benefiting from a supply chain that is likely to have contributed to slave labor. Things like this province where iPhones are made. We do have at least one proven document from the last three years that shows that up to 500 Uyghur slaves were transported over to this factory to work there for limited pay, longer hours than their Han Chinese counterparts, and then had a police escort, because they're not allowed to leave the factory, then have a police escort to and from the factory back to a dormitory where they're housed, they take roll call, no one is allowed to leave, they have limited food... They get all their things searched. There's, This is life for these people in, in the real world today, not in a history book. So let's get into what lessons we have to learn in American politics today about that specifically. American politics today, democracy. It's becoming really trendy to be sick of all politicians altogether. And I'm not necessarily demonizing that notion on an individual scale, but I would like to push back on this trendy idea of that the goal would be that we all just get along and that we all have these common ideas that look out for the common man and that we can all thrive. And while that all sounds great and in a perfect world, ideally everyone would be happy and well taken care of. But in this fallen world that we live in, we are subject to each other, to humanity. It's never going to be perfect. The best we can do is democracy. The best we have ever been able to do as the human race is democracy, the democracy that we are experiencing today. And there's a couple trendy topics that I would like to push back on because right now, even some of my favorite people, some, some people like Oliver Anthony and some people like Joe Rogan and, and these people that I have the utmost respect for and I listen to everything they do. But it's coming up where, you know, all sides are screwing us. We just need to be... You, like there's this ideal balance where we can get real people in there and they will just look out for everybody and everybody will be happy. And that's just simply not the case. That's not the way that democracy works. And the way that I'm going to make this case for us is 
let's look at China right now. That is what the world looks like with unity. China's number one goal is unity. And, you know, on some level, put yourself in the president of China's position. If you've got 1.4 billion people that you're trying to keep unified as a country with over 50 different ethnicities, different religions, different backgrounds and cultures, living in vastly different areas of the country, different regions, different products, all of these things, you're trying to keep a a country of 1.4 billion people united with a common vision enough to continue being a country and to operate. It's not too difficult to see how communism is the route that is pursued. I'm not saying that it's right, but I'm saying that the logic is there. Because we've seen how difficult it is to do with a population that is a fraction of that in America. When you respect people and give them free speech and rights, it's messy. But it's the way that the system works. I would argue that if there is a day where we get legitimate people in government and we suddenly see these disagreements and these polarizing divisive issues and accusations of corruption and all of these things, when those things just disappear and laws start getting passed universally with bipartisan support and everyone feels taken care of and there's only one narrative with no one pushing back, I'm arguing that that would be a scary day for America because that's what the Chinese government looks like. And even if that vision aligns with your vision as a person, good intentions and a good vision, it is only a matter of time before corruption will set in, before appropriate justice becomes corrupted and tainted power and abuse. And democracy is about disagreeing. It's about pushing back on each other. It's about the struggle back and forth and the idea that as people struggle back and forth, as people dissent and everybody from all these different backgrounds has some level of a voice through their vote, through elections, through the ability to run for office, that every decision is subject to that level of scrutiny because there are so many people that have an equal opportunity to voice concerns about it and legitimate checks and balances of power that eventually what comes out the other end, while albeit not be perfect, will be the best that can be done given the situation. As opposed to one ruling party that has no disagreement because over time, that disagreement which may have started with good intentions of we need to keep our country united now result in while well, we have someone threatening our unity we're going to separate their families re-educate them sterilize them and just wipe out an entire ethnicity of people over the course of a generation or two and keep quiet about it so the world doesn't know any different that's scary that's something that we need to be aware of and secondly this idea that Politics weren't always this way. I'm a huge fan of biographies, and recently I've been into biographies of our founding fathers, John Adams by David McAuliffe, Alexander Hamilton, the one that the play is based off by Ron Chernow is the one I'm about halfway through right now. Fantastic. And what you see throughout all of history in our country, I just read Abraham Lincoln by Benjamin Thomas, was another fantastic one. And what you see 
is not this ideal, calm discourse of people talking things out and people coming to legitimate compromise and agreements with each other and then making some sacrifices and jointly electing some person to unite against a common evil. You never see that. In the history of all of our country, there's never been a period where politics have not looked like what they look like today. People constantly trying to impeach the president, constantly trying to accuse each other of corruption and not having the country's best interest at heart, accusing each other of being evil, all of those things, because we have the freedom to do so, and this is how democracy works. It's not fun for most people. It's not enjoyable. But I do think that politicians in general deserve some level of respect for being the ones that can handle that level of depravity and that level of tension and disagreement, that kind of media coverage, that kind of smearing, even in today's world where in a 24-hour news cycle, your entire life can be ruined. And for people still willing to subject themselves to that, to be a part of democracy and keep the machine going so that something comes out the other end, whether it's perfect or not, that is worthy of respect. And I'm not saying I respect, all, like I just love our politicians or anything like that, but the position itself is no winning. It's the way democracy is designed. Even the best presidents throughout all of history had a majority of haters all the time. You see it with Abraham Lincoln. You see it with Alexander Hamilton. George Washington was probably one of the closest to like a universally loved president. Now, Alexander Hamilton wasn't president. I don't want to provide misinformation there. But George Washington was probably the closest to a universal love for a leader of our country. And even he had a significant amount of haters. Every action he had was subject to deep criticism and suspicion and hate. But that's what moved the world forward. Because you need that push and pull. You need that pushback and that discourse to get something out the other end that is resembling something of a variety of interests that we can go off of. And I'm arguing that the day that we see a country that doesn't have that, where discourse isn't happening, where people aren't divided and, and freaking out, is going to be a scary day because it's only a matter of time before that unity and power turns into deep and sadistic corruption. Now, I think that does come with balance, obviously. I, I have said it in this podcast many times, one of my favorite quotes, that honor is not the exclusive property of any political party, and that's Her Herbert Hoover, and I think that's very important to remember. But the process of argument is a requirement of democracy. It's not pretty, but thank God there's still people willing to do it. So people are enslaved, it's 2023. On the other side of the planet, a country I know nothing about, why do I care? Well, let me tell you why you should care. Because all throughout human history, what is playing out in China today, right now as we sit here, has played out in countries all over the world, including our own, at some point in human history. It's only a matter of time before it may come back. And it is your responsibility to be informed about it, to to push back on it where you see fit. If you care about your livelihood, your well-being, your future generations of children, it is important to call out injustice 
where you see it, to be informed that it is happening, to know that somewhere in the world, someone is experiencing a life far different from your own and that that is a valuable perspective and that that life matters and that it's important that human life in and of itself is sacred and that while I'm not Muslim, I understand that someone being persecuted for being Muslim, if that is allowed to stand and we turn a blind eye and we continue giving our dollar to companies that are profiting from that because they're valuing profit over human rights and they're intentionally choosing to turn a blind eye to things like forced labor in the name of making more money, that you're implicit in that. And that if that's allowed to stand with the Muslims today, it's going to be allowed to stand with the Christians tomorrow and with the Hindu the next day and with the non-religious and with the LGBTQ community and with you name it. If it's allowed to stand with one, it'll be allowed to stand with them all. And injustice in any form should be stamped out and we should all be taking the opportunity to inform and arm ourselves in the way that we can. And thanking God for the blessing that you live in a day and age where arming yourselves happens at the ballot box and with your dollar and with your vote rather than with a gun and with your life and with your blood. Because all throughout human history, that has been the case. But today... You can by far make a bigger difference simply by being informed, by joining a movement, by seeking out the people that are better than you and I that are already doing stuff about this and organizing people and just asking for little more than your attention, your signature on a petition, your email inbox for information on how to be more involved, perhaps a donation, and ways to call out these companies because as long as there are companies continuing to turn a blind eye to the injustices happening in China today, there will be, we are implicit in that, and there will be consequences for these actions, and it will come around at some point in history to whatever group you're a part of, or whatever you care about. It's very important to be informed as a citizen. Now, in my show notes, I'm providing multiple links to organizations that I have done the legwork on, I have read through, I've done all the steps suggested for them and verified that they are safe and effective steps. Petitions that are going to real people with real names on them that are making real change that are being covered by reputable news organizations that are playing a big part in enacting law in Congress and changing the international policies of the United States. And that's worth getting involved in and requires a little more than your attention and a little bit of time on your behalf. Now, these organizations are calling out companies that are doing these things. I mentioned Apple a few times. I would say, you know, I have an Apple iPhone. I love my iPhone, and I love a lot of Apple products, you know, when I can get them. Is this a case where I need to go smash my iPhone and try to find something else? Well, also get some historical perspective there. Alexander Hamilton was a famous abolitionist from birth, always made himself aware of the atrocity of slavery and was always throughout his life thoroughly against it and did everything he could to fight it. But he was also educated with money made on the backs of slaves inadvertently. So, you know, are we going to say that he would have been better off without an education? 
risking the impact he would have had in the world as he would not have had nearly the opportunities that he did without the education that he got to change the world to what it is in many ways today? I don't think so. So I'm not necessarily asking you to go out and smash your phone or sell all your clothes or something like that, but make yourself informed enough, start to look through these resources in the show notes and understand, okay, what companies are turning a blind eye to this and choosing the dollar over human rights because they are out there. And if they are, take the time to read those responses because there are companies that are calling out, there are charities that are calling out these companies and asking for a response. What are you doing to ensure that your supply lines are clean, that forced labor is not a part of your profit? And some companies choose to ignore and not respond at all. Some companies pay nothing more than lip service and say, well, we're against slavery and that's that. Okay, but what are you doing to make sure that your supply lines are clean? Normally, I'm all for global trade. I have a book here by Peter Zihan. It went viral a while ago. Fantastic book. Highly recommend. If you want to borrow from me, let me know. As long as I get it back. It's, my fam- it's, it's one of my favorite books called The End of the World is Just the Beginning, Mapping the Collapse of Globalization. Peter Zihan. He's also got a great YouTube channel if you ever want to check him out. And he makes a great case for global trade, but also why global trade is going away and in, in the near future. But normally I'm all for, you know, like if I'm buying a product that was made by people less fortunate in a different country then it would stand to reason that they're benefiting from me in America buying that product. And in some ways that can be true. But in in the instances where we know and have verified that at least on some level slave labor is going into many of the products that we are supporting and buying every day, let's take a minute to get more informed about it. Let's take a second to figure out where is my clothing coming from? Who made it? And what are their morals? What are their values? Because the dollar is what makes the world turn today. And that's going to be your power. I mentioned earlier, I'm wearing Origin clothing hoodie. This is 100% American grown and American made from American cotton by American hands. And, you know, again, I think global trade and other countries have a lot to offer. And I think the world is a better place by through globalization. But at least in this instance, I know that I have no guilt in wearing this clothing. This clothing was made by American hands through supply lines that are receiving a fair wage, that aren't tortured, and that aren't restricted from practicing the religion, that aren't imprisoned in dormitories and forced to work 16 to 20 hours a day and fed propaganda on their few hours of downtime and not allowed to see their children and all these horrible things that are happening in China today. I can have a clean conscience about this and getting back to America first. And I think that's a good thing because if we can get back to America first in ways like this, where we're enforcing and and building up our own local economies, then we can be America first to better help the rest of the world through, you know, when, when our economy is stronger, that's when our laws that are pushing back on Uyghur slavery in China matter more. Because that's that that's when that word gets taken a lot more seriously at the Chinese level. Because if our economy is booming, then China listens when we don't condone what they're doing and choose not to spend the money there. So that's why you should care. And that's what can be done about it. I'm out.